Hey there, queers and queens. Welcome to Tea Cakes and Tarot, Conversations with Queer Futurists. I am your host, Will Wilhelm. I'm thrilled to be revisiting these conversations, and this one in particular gave me so much inspiration for my skill set as an artist and the many ways in which it can have a positive impact in the world. I think we're used to seeing our work displayed, you know, on stage, on canvas, on screen, but we're not used to seeing our work in the organization of people, in the organization of a system, in the organization of an organization. (laughs) And this conversation really instilled in me a lot of creative thinking around how necessary those skills and that innovation can be into a variety of situations. And it gave me a lot of reflection on the value of artists in many spaces, not just the spaces where we're being displayed or our work is being displayed. And who better to teach me that lesson than someone who has had decades of experience as an artist. He's been a dancer, a choreographer, a playwright, a director, an artistic director, all the way up to being the executive director of an organization called Mass Cultural Council. Serving executive realness with us today, my guest is Michael J. Bobbitt. And this conversation was originally recorded on April 1st, 2021. Hey, Michael. Hi, Will. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I know so much like about your uh, work, but we're meeting for the first time right now. And I think that's really special. And I'm very honored um, that this program has taken on that sort of um, vibe and future. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks, I appreciate being asked. I mean, I I was really touched when you you sent the invitation. You look stunning, by the way. Thank you very much. Uh, We love to do, uh, you know, we love a video element. I personally miss getting dressed up and going to the theater. So this is my excuse to do exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you, good for you. Thank you. So you, I'm going to tell them a little bit more about you have had, you've done so many things. You've been a dancer, a choreographer, a writer, a director, an artistic director. And now with a lifetime of um, artistic experience today, I think you're celebrating two months of your executive realness position (laughs) as like what is touted as like the highest ranking arts official in the civic sector in the state of Massachusetts. So that's very fierce and congrats on that <laughs> thank you it's intimidating when every time i hear that it's like oh my gosh how intimidating i love it um so i just want to like i just want to ask you like how is it going what is that transition from ad to ed like right now it's really really great i mean i it, there's so much to learn one um one just sort of navigating a, a bureaucratic job. I'm a bureaucrat now, which is something mm. I, I'm still struggling with. But there's so much to learn about navigating that world, but also about, I mean, I just, I'm trying to memorize all the acronyms in government, <laughs> which is always hard. But the other thing is, uh, you know, most of my focus has been in the last 15 years on theater. I started as a, a dancer and I did a lot of, actually, I started as a trumpet player, classical trumpet player, and then moved back to the dance world. And so, reacquainting myself with the other parts of the arts scene that are not theater is a lot of information. Plus I'm now like, you know, before I was running one organization and now I'm trying to think about the health of a whole state or state's organization. So I'm thinking about what's happening 
regionally and locally and statewide and East Coast and nationally and also internationally to sort mm. of help guide the sector. So it's a lot, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm so glad to hear you say that. And I'm also really glad to hear you feel that after I'm thinking a lot about an article you wrote very recently, but before you held this position um, in American Theatre Magazine, where you sort of like break down what the theater or arts admin board is and also like why, um, especially why in its current format. And you make a really passionate and really wonderful argument for like boards need to have artists on them because the boards are in support of the art and often the members of the board don't necessarily have any experience. So I know you're bringing, like you said, like a lifetime of artistry and a lifetime of like firsthand experience um, of the theater into your job and into the bureaucracy of that. So I'm interested to know about that, but I, I also like um, want to give you like a space to talk about what is it like to bring like the lifetime of a queer artist into that the lifetime of a black artist into that the lifetime of a queer black artist into this world of bureaucracy thinking so much about how you advocated beautifully for artist representation on boards and now you are doing that you know in a different way not a board but you're you're you've dove, dove in yeah i mean i i love being black and I love being queer. It's just, it's interesting to think about it, think about the freedom that I experienced with both of those intersectionalities. And it, and they're, they're strange because in the black community, I'm gay and in the gay community, I'm black. So mm -hmm. there's always, uh, always this tension. And when I say freedom, I just mean freedom to express and to be, which I, which I just love and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, there's no amount of money you can give me to 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 pay me to be straight or to be not black. <laughs> I mean, you just I just love being this. Um, and I think that all of those things uh, and, and, you know, my husband's Jewish and my son is Vietnamese. And so my life is just this amalgamum and this sort of smorgasbord of, of diversity. And I think all of that has helped me as an artist. One, that there's a lot of information to pull from, like the, 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 the things I've experienced in my life, I can bring all of that to my art. But now as an arts leader, and maybe always as an arts leader, the, the empathy, the, 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 the perspective that's wider than um, many people, um, because of because of the way my family is designed uh, and who I am, there's a curiosity about everyone and everything. Um, and that and I, and I sort of wish that the world would, would view race in a curious way mm. that, that, that instead of looking at race as a, as a, as a travesty and as a bad thing, because the way it was designed, Maybe we can get to a place where race and sexuality and all the things that make us unique are things to be revered and celebrated and experienced. Um, because all I find all I find it all fascinating. I spend most of my free time learning about other people because I just am fascinated by it. But all of that has given me this great sense of empathy and a lot of perspective and also the knowledge that I don't know. I don't know enough. And so it's, it's better to ask other people. 
Um, so there, so inclusion has become kind of a core value of mine where I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be the person making all this, the decisions. I want to hear everyone's perspective and then together we'll make a decision. And that somehow has worked for me in all these 20 years of being an arts leader. That it means a lot to hear an arts leader, leader say that, um, you know, that their biggest power is who they surround themselves with. Um, and who they invite in and who they listen to. And, you know, I also, I, I love that life philosophy that you shared. Like, I'm obsessed with being all the things that I am and they bring me such joy because I feel that too. And I maintain, like, like fascination, not in an exoticizing way, but a curiosity way that you said of everyone else's experience because, like, aren't we tasked with, like, sharing the human experience and, like, letting its ever more complicated layers um, delight us? I love when it can be a delight. Um, thank you for, for sharing all of that. Yeah, thank you for asking. I also have learned who not to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. There, you Well, there are people whose perspective is limited and and they come from one perspective. And I, and I just find that debilitating and sometimes you have to not listen to those people i mean i'm doing a lot of race equity consulting right now and in the last couple of days i've actually i seem to have heard from every single person i'm consulting with because there are there's a moment of change um that is disconcerting to certain people who mm-hmm. have had privilege all their lives and they're really struggling with the change and mm-hmm. And I remind the people I'm working with, who do we need to center right now? Who do we need to take care of right now? So you have to not listen to some people. You mm-hmm. have to say you're entitled to your feelings and then move on. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk about it. That's like, that's what we're here. That we like, it's spring. We're on the precipice of like, we're not there yet, but we, but it, like, I feel like I taste it. Like it's possible, but I don't know what it is. And I know a lot of people are looking at you um, as, as a leading voice of like, what is building back better for our industry and how do we do it? And you have been writing and sharing, um, a lot. Um, both, I got to hear a talk with you and Diane Paulus last week, and I've been reading what you've been writing about, um, you know, what can a predominantly white or historically white institution become multicultural? Certainly not by just a change in one season's programming, certainly not by one POC that's your ED&I director, but... I'm really curious to hear more from you on like, can we create multicultural institutions out of the skeleton that we have? Or do we literally have to say like, goodbye to these and hello to something completely new? I think it's going to be a combination of both. um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you think about things like the National Negro Leagues that was formed because the white leagues didn't let us play with them. And so they formed their own thing. Um, soon the game, when the game integrated, um, the Negro leagues, um, faded out, but, but the, the main thing I want to people to understand is that predominantly white institutions were designed to be that way. Their business model is based on, it was built by white people for white people. And it's not to say that those people that built it were bad. Some of them wanted to absolutely keep people that didn't look like them out. But many of them, it just was a because of a lack of perspective. They built the white people built organizations for white people, and if that is your business model, then all the things you mentioned earlier, like 
discount tickets and a couple of shows that are for people of color or have people of color in it or dni chief executive officer or um uh, uh you know it, all the things that we have been doing to with the thought that we would fix racism in our organizations mm. it's not going to fix it those little programs and changing policies is not going to fix racism you have to fundamentally go back and change your business model so you have to have predominantly multicultural people rebuild a predominantly multicultural business model because you won't have the perspectives in the room to make the decisions to take care of all people. And that's the hardest part because it really means that white people or people that have the privilege or that have had privilege have to be willing to give up power. Mm. You think about women's right to vote, that wasn't changed by women, that was changed by men, mm -hmm. right? They, mm. The men had to be willing to give up that power. Uh, I don't know why we gave them the power in the first place, but that's that's how it is. And so it, it's it's a, it's simple when you think of it that way. In order to change your business model, you have to have predominantly multicultural people designing predominantly, for predominantly multicultural people. That's the simple explanation. The hard part is how you navigate the change and how do you make the change. Uh, but it's possible. I mean, I've seen it. I did it at, at, in D.C. and I was doing it at New Rep. Mm -hmm. uh, I walked into an all-white organization, all-white, all-white, all-white. And when I left, and now it's it's continuing, you can't... When I left, when you walked into the theater, you saw predominantly multicultural people in there and in the classrooms and on the staff and in, in the teaching artists. So it's possible to do it. That's amazing. And that I'm so struck by that um, by that example you gave of women's suffrage. And the thing that is striking me is like, it actually is not taking away anything from men to let women vote. They're just, you're just sharing. You're just yeah. giving them the same privileges that you want for yourself. The power only matters if it's exclusive to them, that they can't like, you know, share this clout or this social power with other people. I, I don't understand what is like you said, so... Um, so affronting about that, that if it's not only mine, that somehow it loses its power. Well, that's what it is. It's power and it's money and it's privilege. It, 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 they treat it like pie. Like if I give you a piece of pie, there's not enough pie mm -hmm. for me. There's plenty of pie. There's so much pie out there. We can. We live in America. It is the like richest, fattest, most bountiful. Like there is just so much. Yeah. So when it uh, like, we are we're not going to get into like starvation of the world here or like homelessness, but we could because it's like the resources are there in abundance. Yeah. It's just the distribution that is not. We're choosing um, not to use those resources to take care of the people that need it the most. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something else that you mentioned in um, the conversation with Diane Paulus that I want to bring into this because we talk about um, Shakespeare a lot on this, um, on this series and because uh, my co-creator Aaron Murray and I are working on a piece that sort of um, revitalizes Shakespeare as this sort of genderqueer epic, um, which is fun and, and we're very excited about that project. You talked about, though, like the elitism of Shakespeare, which is like the number one most exclusionary art form in the theater. And so I'm curious if you think like in these multicultural organizations that you want to build, like do the classics, does Shakespeare have a place? Is there a way to make 
to bring that with its whole history to make it good for a multicultural audience. Yeah, I mean, in the utopia of the world and of theater, <laughs> certainly Shakespeare has a place. Um, I don't think you can think about the world theater without think about the contributions of this great playwright. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare takes up a lot of space right now in mm-hmm. our in our zeitgeist, and also all of those who came after him take up a lot of space. And I and I think when you think about sort of the root causes of racism or oppression, it all starts with ideas. Like someone had the idea that Shakespeare was the pinnacle of theater mm-hmm. and ballet was the pinnacle of dance mm-hmm. and opera was the pinnacle of, see- of singing. Someone had those ideas and then those ideas become institutions and institutionalize where now we like are teaching full-on master's degrees in acting Shakespeare and and actors aren't actors until they have mastered Shakespeare or they're you're not really a great dancer until you have mastered ballet and those institutions then get all of this funding because of mm. the idea and so now we have all of these incredibly large 300 million dollar institutions all over the country or the world that are specifically based in a white theater form. And the other idea that we have in theater is that theater started in Greece, right? Which is not true at all. No. But that idea was put out there and then it was institutionalized. What would happen if we had the idea that African theater is the best theater? Would we see institutions for African theater? So I do think he has space. I think that we, especially now, especially when we have this opportunity to redesign the whole thing. Uh, and I, when I say redesign, I say redesign, like boards, like what nonprofits are. And uh, I think we have to redesign the whole thing. Um, but now that we have this time to rethink things, we have to come up with new ideas that now can sort of put bricks into into bigger institutions. Um, but I, but I do, I think that, you know, to me, Shakespeare is a unit of study. He's not a whole, a whole master's degree. It goes right back to the distribution. Like how many theater companies in this country have Shakespeare as a middle name and does it need to be, you know, the 20 or 30% I'm making up that number that it is probably not. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about, um, I think a lot of people want to believe in a, like a complete restructure of like what the arts community is. And I think there's also a lot of pessimism in this moment that it's like, oh no, that's too big or that's too much or we can't do it. But I'm like, are we actually leading with artists and creativity? Because we've accomplished a lot before and we've over a, you know, over a history of humanity. And there's a lot that we're going to accomplish through artists again. So I'm, I'm just, I really hope that people listening to this hear those like broad paint strokes that you're, that you're bringing and think about like, where can I fill in and making that a reality? Because it is possible if you start from that headspace. Yeah. Well, we need new ideas and we need younger people to have new ideas and really decide what you want theater to look like and start building that because Mm -hmm. 
I am the first person to say that I learned everything I learned about theater in the late 1900s. And now it's the early 2020s. I mean, I, we, we, all that I'm, all that I do when I produce is, is go back to all the things I learned. I mean, certainly I've learned new things over those years, but the foundation of what I learned was, was learned way back when, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Mm. And so we need new things. I mean, I think about this resistance to digital theater. To me, it doesn't make any sense. We have, we're already learning that through digital theater, we can reach so many more people and it's like this. It's like sports. All those people that enjoy sports at home, they're having a different experience because you can do slow mo and instant replay and data mm. scrolls and pop up the bios and have colorful commentary in your ear. That is dra- vast, vastly different than what happens when you go to the stadium, mm-hmm. right? And so, what can we do as theater artists to make the experience of what you're having at home? really really cool and visceral right that's still going to attract people to the venues we're not going to lose people going to the theater to see shows but maybe we can have both at the same time i've been reading all these articles in europe they're calling it digital theater physical (laughs) physical theater and the other thing i keep telling people is that when we have when we have advances in technology and um and uh in the digital world we don't really ever go back no, never. Like you don't see people, you don't see people out there using CDs and and iPods and and eight tracks, right? We keep moving forward, and so mm-hmm. those people that are holding on with this notion that we're going to go back to normal, you're wrong, and it's going to feel like a throwback. It's going to feel really like a throwback, and those theaters that go back and do theaters the old way in a few years. It's going to feel really weird to go back into the theater to see theater the old way. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should have like throwback Thursdays for a few years so that we can go back and do it the same way. But I think that it's going to feel strange. And I think that we should use all the creative energy that we have and the creativity that we have to reimagine this whole world that incorporates all the possi- possibilities that we have in the digital world. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping I can come up with some money to encourage people to innovate around that. And also maybe one of the things we, and I, you know, the performing arts world, the arts world moves slowly. I mean, we, we complain about nonprofit practice. We complain about fundraisers. We complain about boards, but yet we don't change it. Mm-hmm. We just keep doing the same thing every year. And so, Maybe it's time for us to say, hey, we're the creatives. Maybe we need people that are innovators or futurists or social scientists or, um, I don't know, like engineers coming in and working with us to say, hey, here's our idea. Can you help us figure out how to realize this? Mm-hmm. Um, so Something else that you like on that digital conversation that, you, that I heard you mention was like, cell phones why are we like maintaining that this is a cell phone free space the iphone is the most ubiquitous piece of technology that exists and like we like social media gathers people over common topics more than anything else so when you go to a restaurant or a rock show or anything you are like documenting what you're doing and that is the free fucking advertising (laughs) so why is that never in the theater like yes i understand the step and repeat is cute but like why is there not at least a moment of the show where you're like 
tweet the hell out of this because that is making because that is creating the energy around your show. Um, yeah, we got. Like, I couldn't agree more. We got like little computers in our pockets. Use that yes, power, please. Uh, and and it, it would do so much for the theater world. And at one point, I was thinking at New Rep before I finished my time there that maybe we would have. We would have like quiet car performances, you know, like when you ride a train <laughs> and there's one car. Yeah, totally. So why not like one day a week have the Thursday be like the quiet car performance of so people that enjoy theater the old way can sit down and the enjoy The nostalgic theater, way. Right? <laughs> and people that really want to like help spread the word and get and get the young people into the theater can like cell phone, take a picture of the scene you just saw and tweet that stuff out. I mean, to me, and... it makes sense. You know, to be, and it's like, it's an age thing, but it's also very much a race thing. The whole like, be quiet and pretend like you're not here and do not influence anyone else's performance. Like, you know, there were moments uh, when I was a company member at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival where some of those subscribers were not okay to the people in the co- of people of color and audience who were laughing and participating, like, you know, like we're all at the live theater having a shared experience. Right. And the, the weird thing is that. Shakespeare was never like that before. Like this, when Shakespeare first started, it was interactive, and loud and raucous and booing yeah. and hissing, and so and body was, as hell. Yeah. Like, yeah, uh, I could go on. Um, yeah. <laughs> Michael, can I give you a tarot reading? I would love that so much. This is the, this is my favorite part of this whole night. I mean, talking to you is great, but I'm so excited yeah. about this. Um. So I, I guess I haven't asked you. Have you had a tarot reading before? I have not. I have not. I love. I really love when the guest is their first tarot reading. So, so we do a little special one, and I'll I'll give you um, a little bit of info on what we're doing. Um, a standard tarot deck has um, seventy eight cards, um, and some of they're they're like it's sort of like there's four suits, uh, sort of like a standard deck of cards, um, and you know, uh, four house cards and one through ten. But then there's also twenty two cards that are called the major arcana. The other sets the minor arcana. And they sort of represent, um, uh, it's called the fool's journey. The fool is card zero. Um, like a, a cycle of life that we're sort of always repeating. So I think of them as these like guideposts that we find ourselves on. Um, but they're also very much like archetypes. Hmm. So in this world, I think of them a lot as like, who are the archetypal characters that we see on stage, that we see in Shakespeare's work. So I do that with one of Shakespeare's sonnets. And so we just find a little place between these tarot cards and this poetry to invite some perspective on anything that you're just like curious about, speaking of curiosity. And I know you told me before that you like want to do um, a reading that's so, that's some greater insight on your on your son. So I, I would love if you could just tell me a little bit about him and a little bit about what you're most curious about while I shuffle these cards. Um, how many grandchildren I'll have, although I'm not like rushing you. Wrap it up, double wrap it, son. If you're watching, double wrap, please. Um, Sang, his name is Sang Christopher Bobbitt Hanna. He was adopted when he was um, eight months old from Vietnam, a small little beach village in Vietnam. And he's now 19. Um, studying, I know, I know, studying marine biology at the University of Florida, but he's this sort of outgoing at the same time, sort of quiet and contemplative, but he's very friendly and warm and respectful, but also irreverent and crude. He's an athlete. He's very smart. He's, you know, he's studying marine biology, so he's obsessed with 
with uh, water life. Yeah. Uh, he still lets me hug him. Yeah. I'm actually going to visit him tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I'm going to going down to Florida to visit for a couple of days. Um, but he's just the, he's the love of my life, and so I'm curious about his life as an adult. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Okay. Perfect. So we're going to talk about Sang, the introverted extrovert who contains multitudes, um, and you know, becoming the parent of an adult, um, and and what to think about this weekend. That's awesome. Okay. Um, so I've been shuffling. Uh, these, these are the the tarot cards, and what I do is just I'm going to like sort of jumble up and cut the deck. Whenever you feel the moment is right, tell me to stop, and then the top card is going to be your card. Okay. Great. Yep. Okay, so our card is really interesting, temperance. It's so funny that you talk about um, the, all of the, con like not conflicts, but the contradictions that humans have um, with temperance because temperance is all about finding um, the balance and center and combining two things. So see the cup that's being poured into the other cup? Yeah. Um, as a non-binary person, I, I very much like to think of this as like the sort of like uh, non-binary, it's neither this or that card. But temperance, especially when we're figuring out how to proceed, it tells us to sort of like find our center in the combination of both options in both future possibilities um, and, and finding like the strength and the balance in that. Okay. So as a Libra, I also really like that card. Okay, cool. Um, so we're going to... We're going to talk about that um, with a sonnet. So we're going to do the same thing. Just give this a little shuffle. And then same thing whenever you're ready. And stop. Great. Okay. So temperance is getting paired with sonnet 50. So I'm going to read it for you twice. First time, just listen to the words. You can close your eyes if you want. Um, just sort of like, you know, let it wash over you. They're dense. Um, and then I'll read it for you once more. So don't worry about catching every word. How heavy do I journey on the way when what I seek, my weary travels end, doth teach that ease and that repose to say, thus far the miles are measured from thy friend. The beast that bears me, tired with my woe, plods dully on to bear that weight in me, as if by some instinct the wretch did know his rider loved not speed being made from thee. The bloody spur cannot provoke him on that sometimes anger thrusts into his hide, which heavily he answers with a groan, more sharp to me than spurring to his side. For that same groan doth put this in my mind, my grief lies onward and my joy behind. So this is an interesting image of the poet-like walking away from, you know, being pulled away from what I'm imagining is maybe the joy of childhood and that sort of innocence of, of you know, being a parent that you're, that you're present there for and having to, like, not only let go, but, you know, he's sort of gone and you're plodding on to your next journey. And, you know, you can't force that beast to just, like, hurry up and get going because um, that beast knows that you're kind of like sad about the parting too. But, you know, that that sadness can s sometimes feel like it's slowing the journey, but 
I think that sadness also can be um, a reverence for the joy that, you know, that was there and that you always carry with memories and, you know, with a very strong relationship that it seems that you still have. And you do have a, a teenage son, almost an adult, you know, an adult son who still hugs you and all of those wonderful things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you look at temperance. Okay. And I'm going to read it one more time. And this time I just want you to like take just like anything that you notice, anything that sticks out to you, either in the card or in the sonnet, um, and then I'll ask you to share. Okay. Cool. How heavy do I journey on the way when what I seek, my weary travels end, doth teach that ease and that repose to say, thus far the miles are measured from thy friend. The beast that bears me, tired with my woe, plods dully on to bear that weight in me, as if by some instinct the wretch did know his rider loved not speed being made from thee. The bloody spur cannot provoke him on that sometimes anger thrusts into his side hide, which heavily he answers with a groan, more sharp to me than spurring to his side. For that same groan doth put this in my mind. My grief lies onward and my joy behind. How does that feel? <laughs> it feels good. It feels good. It feels, um, I mean, what I noticed that he's got my kid's shape and actually mm. that illustration, his, the eyes on the illustration remind me of my son's eyes. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. and that he's standing so firmly, like he's not even looking at, he's so confident pouring the cup. He's not really looking at it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and even though those those wings are red and they remind me of like something sort of more dark or sinister, he's mm. got wings. So he's like this angel and all those little diamonds are like sparkling around him. That really does remind me of saying so very much. And when I listen to the words and think about it, um, the journey that he's on and that I am on, I'm actually filled with like a tremendous amount of joy about it. Like when I think about and even though I miss seeing him, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like we're apart. But I do find myself like looking at his baby pictures and finding more baby pictures to like <laughs> to put out because I just miss I miss those moments. I miss, I really miss those moments because he just mm -hmm. is, was such a great kid all, all his life. Um, but yeah, there's this journey that he's on this really incredible, I mean, this incredible journey of like being not orphaned because his birth mother was alive, but and maybe we don't mm -hmm. know about his birth father, but, but being um, put into an orphanage. And then we built this family together and there's this deep, incredible bond that is like so wonderful and so intense and so loving and as I let him go into his own adulthood, I feel just so like fucking proud of him because he is such mm -hmm. a great human. So all of that just just warms my heart. So I'm so thank you for sharing that and to 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 mix my son in tarot and Shakespeare is just kind of a cool cool little experiment. So thank you. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yeah, and I love. I'm so glad to hear you say that this card reminds you of saying and. The other thing I want to point out is, like you said, he's not, um, the card is not looking down at the cups, but also just like staring straight forward, straight out, like eyes on the prize, 
on the journey, ready to go. And you described your family already as this blending of many elements, which is very present in temperance. And, um, you know, even though it's, it, it's maybe tempting to feel sullen in a goodbye. Um, even even if it's a, a transition to trudge through, I think there's a moment. I think there's an opportunity to like revel in it, mm-hmm. revel in the pride, even revel in the sorrow, revel in the completion of like something really incredible that builds a foundation of something even more incredible to come, and. That makes me really happy to hear um, and to know about you and your family. Thanks. Yeah, he's just this. He's gonna do such great things. I mean, I the other thing too that he's taking a theater appreciation class right now, <laughs> and he shared with me a, 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 an article, a, a little paper he had to write, and I was like, wait a second, where did that come from? But he's this like, I mean, he's grown up in the theater, so like. Mm-hmm. All of his babysitters were like students of mine. Um, Lady Dana Didi was one of his favorite um, babysitters, and she, trans woman, who was like my hero right now. But but I was I was struck by the fact that when he gets success, he's going to let his kids experience theater and the arts, mm-hmm. and he'll probably chair some board of a of an arts organization. I see it. I can see it so so well, and he'll be the right kind of chair. He'll be like. No, we're not doing it like that because that's old, white, and racist, and we're doing it like this because this makes more sense. I am manifesting that heritage and that lineage of arts leadership for you all. <laughs> Good, please. Michael, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was it was truly a delight, um, and I'm very honored um, that you said yes and you agreed. Thank you so much, Will, for um, having me on. This has been a nice way to end, end my night and end the week, so... Have a great Absolutely. Night. Yeah. Thank you, you too. And I hope you have a fabulous weekend with your son. I will. I promise you. Hmm. That was really special to end that interview with Michael, the dad, after spending so much time with Michael, the artist. Not that they're separate, but you know what I mean. It's been really cool to see on social media him and his son, like, continuing to grow, continuing to blossom. The thing that I'm still thinking about a lot two years later in my own artistic partnerships in so much of my life was a word that Michael repeated a few times, which was curious, curiosity. He was talking about specifically with identity politics, being curious about each other's experiences. And I feel like that's a potential answer to what so many of us see as a problem. I think a lot of us look at race politics as a problem to solve, which is impossible. And it's not a problem. We live in a multicultural, multiracial country, and that is a simple reality. So how can we get curious about what that means for us as a country and us as individual people, learning how to be in community with people from all over the world, people from all over the world, are in our country. That melting pot idea used to be a point of American identity. I remember learning it as a point of American pride, and now it's being discussed as if that's a problem. And Michael's offering to look at it with curiosity, to learn more about it, curiosity feels so playful to me. That seems like a way 
to understand more of each other and to find more harmony and to find more togetherness. Through that, we can work on the problems we face as a society together. Like our environment and our climate going berserk. That's a problem to solve. But each other's experiences of the world is not a problem. So I've been thinking a lot about curiosity. And I think it's hard to be curious when situations feel urgent because curiosity feels almost like luxurious or lackadaisical to me. But how can we maintain curiosity even under pressure? Yeah, I really appreciate Michael's invitation to us all for curiosity. And it was clear that he enjoys it so much. Another thing I want to briefly mention is... Michael really advocated for innovation and digital technology to be a part of our artistic lives and especially the theater on stage. We all know that when new things come out, there's no putting the toothpaste back into the tube, you know? So it's not like Netflix and TikTok are going to go away and then theater will flourish again because we're not, because we don't have that competition. No. There will always be an ease of access to content now that we didn't used to have before. So how can we work with that? How can we work within that parameter to bring the beautiful content that we have to share to so many people to make it so easily accessible? And that leads me right into Michael's appeal to please, dear God, have innovators and artistic creative people making your boardroom decisions, making your executive decisions, understanding how to lead an artistic company to practical choices. It's really hard when the board is the most rooted institution that is so resistant to change and wants things to be set in the way that they were in the 90s or before. And the troubling reality of that is that we see those boards tanking these organizations when they're so resistant to change. In the two years since we recorded that conversation, so many new artistic directors have taken over at different theaters, specifically black artistic directors. And the boards that are meant to serve those artistic organizations and those artistic leaders are really robbing their chances of success by refusing to collaborate and by refusing to change. This should sound like a very familiar conversation if you've been reading anything about what has happened with Victory Gardens Theater. It's a huge tragedy to me and to all of us in the Chicago theater community who really valued that space as an incubator for new works and new voices. And so many important pieces of theater came out of that space. That was one particular case that just so happened to be all over the internet that the rest of the American theater industry heard about. I know of several institutions where that happened in Chicago alone. I know there are plenty of other organizations across the country where new leaders are being hired, but then not supported by these board institutions because the boards themselves don't want to change. They just want to change the face of the organization. Well, if the face and head of the organization is leading our creative pursuits and there is no one in the rest of the body of that organization that has a creative problem-solving mind, then how are they going to successfully speak the same language? How are we going to be in pursuit of the same goals if there's such a deep disconnect at the neck? So Michael 
clearly flourishing in his position is just the proof in the pudding that his lifetime of artistic personal experience, that his lifetime of experience walking through the world as a queer person, walking through the world as a black person, walking through the world as a black queer person, these are all his assets that inform the way he navigates the goals of his organization. It all comes back to that curiosity, that curiosity which allows him to say, well, if this was true for you then, and this is true for me now, then what is possible for us together in the future? I hope for us as artists out there, we continue making the things that we want to share, but we also start to look at these other organizations that are a little bit more behind the scenes. And I hope there can be more of a dialogue on how we can better influence each other to make better work for a better community that maintains more relevance and the theater is not going to die. Thank you so much to our incredible Tea Cakes and Tarot team. They are my co-creator, Aaron Murray, our sound engineer, Nigel Shields, our graphic designer, Ray Morgan, and we are produced by the Island Shakespeare Festival. Extra special thanks go to our season two sponsors, Whidbey Telecom, Island Ductless Heat Pumps, Goose Community Grocer, and Goosefoot Community Fund. Oh, and one more thing. The time has come, hennies. If you will be in the Chicago area from May 4th to June 3rd, please allow me to personally invite you to the world premiere of Gender Play or What You Will, presented by About Face Theater at the Den Theater in Wicker Park. Gender Play is a magical solo show that is one part party, one part seance, and one part fever dream that invites both audience and actor, hint, that is me, on a journey of self-discovery and queer possibility through the works of William Shakespeare. Tickets are available at aboutfacetheater.com. That's theater with an R-E, of course. We'd love to see you there. With that in mind, that leads us pretty well into Sonnet 50, which is about leaving things behind. (laughs) Here we go. How heavy do I journey on the way when what I seek, my weary travels end, to teach that ease and that repose to say, Thus far the miles are measured from thy friend. The beast that bears me, tired with my woe, plods dully on to bear that weight in me. As if by some instinct the wretch did know his rider loved not speed being made from thee. The bloody spur cannot provoke him on, that sometimes anger thrusts into his hide, which heavily he answers with a groan, more sharp to me than spurring to his side. For that same groan doth put this in my mind. My grief lies onward, and my joy behind. You know, I do feel grief a lot about my life before the pandemic and the artistic experiences I was having and the access to joy I felt. And even though I miss a lot of those times, I wouldn't go back because I didn't feel the ability to really question or be curious about the things that did frustrate me. I felt like I just had to accept them. So if there is something you're grieving or a problem that you're facing, I'm encouraging you to consider how can you reapproach it with curiosity. All right, my curious cats. Until the next time, keep on shining. <laughs>